The short answer is that it would make it much harder to buy a home. Welcome back to another episode of Elle Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Anna Schneer, who is president of A.B. Schneer Associates, LLC, a housing and mortgage finance consulting firm offering expertise in mortgage markets, financial reform, and fair lending. With a distinguished career, Dr. Ann Schneer previously held leadership roles at Freddie Mac, where she directed corporate relations and ran the research division, and at the Urban Institute, where she served as Director of Housing and Public Finance. Thank you so much, Ann, for joining us today. You're welcome. So on Halloween of this year, 2023, there was a verdict in the Missouri court holding the National Association of Realtors and some brokerage firms liable for nearly $2 billion in damages due to an alleged conspiracy to maintain artificially high commissions for real estate agents. However, before we talk about this lawsuit, can you explain how real estate agents are actually paid? They're paid in a variety of ways, but the typical model, which was the subject of this lawsuit, was to have the seller, the seller's agent, pay both the buyer's agent and their own fee. So typically, the seller's agent will ask for, say, a 6% commission and split that commission with the agent that represents the buyer. So basically, the person who's selling the house they're responsible for 100% of that commission. Half of that is going to their agent, and then half of that is going to the person's agent that's buying the house. Is that correct? It's typically, but it doesn't always happen. I mean, there are other models. But typically, yes. That was what the law was about. Right. So we're not going to say this is necessarily 100% true in every case, but generally speaking, this is how it's how it works. Yes. Despite the decline of traditional intermediaries like travel agents or stockbrokers, hiring a real estate agent for home sales remains a common practice in the United States of America. This industry has largely avoided disruptions seen in other sectors since the age of the internet. In 2023, do we really need real estate agents? Well, I think they provide a lot of a service to buyers and sellers of housing. It's typically the largest financial transaction a family will make. And if you survey recent home buyers and sellers, they certainly think that their agent added value. So let's just kind of talk about this lawsuit then. So basically, we had a $1.8 billion verdict against the National Association of Realtors on Halloween and some brokerage firms. Can you know, kind of take the average person through this lawsuit? Well, it basically was a lawsuit brought on the behalf of plaintiffs in Missouri. And the plaintiffs consisted of people who had sold their homes over, I can't remember, a period of time, eight years or something like that. And they argued that commissions were too high because the seller had to pay. I'm not sure about the nature. I think that the nature of that particular case was whether or not it violated antitrust to have the common practice of the seller offering a commission to the buyer's agent. And it was settled very 
quickly for such a complicated case, and it has metastasized to other parts of the country relatively quickly. There are similar lawsuits coming up, so it represents a huge financial threat to both real estate brokerage firms and the National Association of Realtors. I guess what one should recognize is the realtors have something called a multiple listing service, and that enables realtors to put homes they are offering for sale and share those offering with other members of the MLS. And as part of that, they, again, typically offer a commission to the buy side agent, which could range from a dollar to, you know, 3% of the sales price or higher. Ryan, you said it could metastasize to other areas. I mean, I believe in 2024, there's already going to be another one. Oh, yeah, there's already, there was a, the morale case, but then apparently there's one in Texas. I've read something coming up in California. So it's likely, especially given this victory, which will be appealed, but it's likely to, you know, live on and extend to other areas. This one was just parts of Missouri that were represented in the lawsuit. So yeah, Anne, I, f- I found you by reading a 2022 article that you wrote called Be Careful What You Ask For, The Economic Impact of Changing the Structure of Real Estate Agent Fees. How does this lawsuit change real estate fees? I've been watching YouTube videos and reading articles, and it seems like they say this is one of the biggest landmark cases in the real estate industry in decades. So how does it actually impact? And there's basically three people, right, to buying a house. You have the person buying the house, the person selling the house, and then the the real estate agent. So how does it impact each one of these three parties? Well, there are four people often because buyers typically use an agent to help them in their search and in all the paperwork and all the issues once you find a house to get it sold. And sellers typically use a real estate agent to service them. And the practice, it used to be there were no agents representing buyers. And over time, that began to evolve. And the practice then became for the seller's agent to split the commission, typically 50-50, but not always, with the buyer's agent. And so that's the way it has worked in the majority of transactions today. There are other models out there over the last few years that have tried to disrupt that model. And so far, the standard model, as you say, has survived where the seller typically pays for the agent fees. And, you know, the argument about this case was that precluded negotiation, that fees would be lower if the buyer had to pay for their own agent because they'd negotiate a fee. You know, the seller could negotiate a fee, but they thought the buyer, you know, in a a sense, receiving a free service would keep them artificially high, which makes sense. But if you consider the way the world actually functions, it's more troubling, which is the point of our paper was What happens if the results of all this litigation is that the seller's agent is precluded from paying the buy-side fee? So what happens if that could no longer occur? And the short answer is that it would make it much harder to buy a home because the majority of potential first-time homeowners, cash constraints are very daunting, and particularly for minorities and lower-income 
households. The very families right now that the current administration is trying to make it easier to get them into homeownership. You said there's four parties. Can we kind of just break down each one specifically what it means? It seems like for the person that's actually listing the house, not much changes for them, right? I mean, they're still having their commission baked into the sale, but for everyone else, it seems like there would be drastic changes. Well, the seller would no longer, if this was precluded, have to pay. Presumably, they'd pay a lower commission because it would no longer have to compensate the buyer's agent. And the buyer would now have to come up with the cash to pay their agent. And the agents, presumably, you know, according to the theory of this case, certainly on the buy side, would face more competition and people would question more what their fee was. And that would put downward pressure on the fees. You know, the sellers already have to pay. So presumably what downward pressure is of fees, you know, they are presumably already doing. But the fact is, though, that, you know, if you look at surveys of people who use real estate agents, there's not a lot of shrewd competition when they select. Most people only interview one or two agents. And most of those agents, they get through a friend, a referral from a friend, or or have used themselves in the case of recent buyers. So it's not at all clear that just breaking that link would change that all that much. But that was not really the point of our paper. The point of our paper was if it was an all-cash world where everybody paid cash for their house, there were no mortgages involved, getting rid of this practice would basically not affect anything. Presumably the price of the house would fall by whatever amount the borrower would now have to pay and they'd both be better off, but maybe the real estate agents would lose a little money. But that's not true when you factor into the fact that most people buy a home with a mortgage and that coming up with the required down payment is perhaps the biggest obstacle, if not the biggest obstacle, for first-time homeowners. And let me give you a simple example. Say that the most a bank was willing to lend you. They do not allow agents' fees to be included in the mortgage. You can't just mortgage them, first of all, if you're purchasing a home. But so say you had $10,000 and you had to put at least 10% down. So if you had $10,000 and had to put 10% down, you could afford a $100,000 home, 10 for the down payment and 90000 for the mortgage. If you suddenly had to pay, say, $2,000 in real estate fees, which would be a 2% buy side fee, the most you could afford is $80,000. And it's because of this leveraging and the widespread use of financing that the impact of making a change like this, again, prohibiting seller paid buy side fees, would have potentially such a big impact on people's ability to buy a home, particularly first time homeowners. Some people have said that, why don't they just, you know, the banks will change, the world will change, and they'll let these fees be included and they'll redefine what value is. Well, you know, that might happen over time, but having spent a lot of time in that industry, it would be a long and painful process. And that is what concerns me the most, that if there was a sudden prohibition, the impact on the market would be pretty profound, particularly at the lower end and particularly 
among minorities who are far more likely to be cash constrained than non-minority households. Yeah, it seemed like the main gist of the article that I, I took away was that if you have a starter house or you're looking to sell your starter house and move into your second home, that both lose significant leverage. Like you're saying, if you have, say, $20,000 in cash and you have to set aside 2000 of that for the real estate agent, that's about 10%, which when you factor that in terms of how much more that would get you in terms of a, a loan, some of the numbers from your article, I mean, you're talking like eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars dollars $100,000. Oh in yeah, terms far, of- far exceeding anything the seller would gain by not having to pay it. Again, just because of leveraging. And in fact, the example that I gave was the 10% because the math is easier. In reality, it's much higher than that impact. It's higher than that because, you know, the maximum under FHA is 96.5. So it has a significant impact not only on the buyer's ability to get the home, but also the price that sellers will receive from their home. And so maybe they'll find another buyer and, you know, maybe it's hard to predict how the market would sort out, but there'd definitely be downward pressure on both home ownership rates and on housing prices if, again, it was required. And any mandate or prohibition is what concerns me the most. You know, if people put in other models where that didn't happen and consumers chose to do it, it, it would be a different story. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but my concern with this litigation is they'll preclude that. And even if the market adjusts, it'll take time and it'll be a, a, a shock, a sense shock to the industry. The counter to that, again, is, well, lenders will just let borrowers put it in their mortgage. Well, yeah, maybe sometime, but it's a very naive view of the way financial regulation and financial markets actually work. Because the actually the equity in a home called loan to value ratio is like the most important predictor of mortgage defaults. So fiddling with the definition of that and allowing it essentially go higher because you think the price of the home will be up. That is a major adjustment to standard operation and credit risk management models that, if anything, would take a long time to work its way through the system. So what about the people you alluded to earlier where they say you have Zillow and Realtor.com and all these websites, just like you're not using a travel agent anymore, you use Expedia or, or Airbnb or whatever. How much of an impact does a realtor have? And then as you mentioned in your paper, you say a lot of people just think a lot of these real estate agents are overpaid. Yeah, a lot of, yeah people ain't paying real estate agencies. <laughs> And they're not real good about negotiating those fees. It is true. Uh, I think, you know, I don't know what the current numbers are, but, you know, 80% of people say they find their home over the internet. But they still value the service of a realtor, according to these surveys. The the weird thing is that the most common answer that they give is, well, they helped me find the right home. So I'm not quite sure. But again, maybe it will replace realtors. My concern is that the courts do something that preclude the current system and just shut it off. And I think that would be highly disruptive. We did an article, be careful what you ask for, but that's be careful what you're going after, because if that's what you're going after and if that's immediate prohibition, it could be very disruptive to the market. 
There could be other models. I'm sure there will be other models that emerge over time. But again, right now, it's the biggest financial transaction most people make. And most people select a realtor. Most sellers get a realtor. Most buyers get a realtor. But if, especially first-time homeowners who've never been processed before, actually, I was a first-time home builder, a buyer, and I didn't use a realtor. But... But I had to get lawyers, I had to get all these other things. And I've certainly used realtors since in my own transactions. So, you know, maybe they will, they seem to stick around. And I think the reason that the people still seem to value their service, at least according to surveys, is that it's such a large transaction. It occurs very infrequently. You know, how many times do you buy or sell a house? And it, it's not quite the equivalent of selling stocks or travel agents. It's not the same thing. It's both highly emotional and financially uh, key. And I think those two things probably will have people keeping agents for a while. Maybe AI will get rid of every, all of us. But again, our concern was just an immediate prohibition of this practice that's been around for God knows how long. It seemed like they're in the lawsuit, they also were talking about the MLS, which is basically just a collection, a database of houses that yeah. the realtors all kind of share amongst each other. And I believe in a 2007 paper you wrote called Do Real Estate Agents Compete on Price? Evidence from Seven Metropolitan Areas. You talked a little bit about the history, but I was actually surprised to find out that the MLS was in the early 1900s and it used to just be a catalog. And then of course it got digitized with the internet. And then I believe in 2007, the Department of Justice actually filed a lawsuit. And then that's when Zillow and all these websites were able to access the MLS and post that online. So really since that yeah. lawsuit by the DOJ, that's when it really changed the industry. It used to be very, very hard to get. It was a protected asset. They viewed it as an access. It didn't have open access. Go back when I was writing my dissertation, I wanted access to the MLS in Boston. <laughs> Forget it. So it's changed. And you can go to a lot of websites and find what's available and consumers use those. So that was a significant move. Well, even a Zillow, which would be, would be highly affected by this lawsuit, as two-thirds of their revenue is from actually giving agents leads and then getting, you know, kind of kickbacks yeah. on those fees. So can you talk about how Zillow actually makes money and the impact on the largest website in the real estate industry? I, you know, I know that they make money on referrals to buyers. And if this means the death of buyers agents, that could have a significant impact on Zillow. Because the option have to, is that people just stop using you know, another way around this dire, you know, impact on ability to buy a house is that people just stop using buy-side agents, which will depend on what value they place in them. But to the extent that they reduce the use of buy-side agents, places like Zillow could be affected, would be affected. It seems like this real estate industry is just kind of ripe for dis disruption. I mean, in the last numbers I saw, there's about 2 million either realtors or just real estate agents in total. I mean, realtor, you have to be part of the realtor association to call yourself that, but we'll just say real estate agents. And there's about 6 million houses sold, I believe, last year, which means if you do you know, 6 million houses at 2 million real estate agents, 
the average real estate agent would be selling three houses, which of course we know doesn't happen. It's the whole 80-20 principle, right? I mean, isn't it 20% of the the real estate agents make 80% of the sales? I've read studies that say that there's probably somewhere around 1.2, 1.3 million real estate agents too many. So it seems like it would just kind of shake out a lot of the real estate agents that are maybe that good. And a lot of people seem to have negative experiences with real estate agents. Maybe they're just dealing with the bottom 80% that would get shaken out by this and people would then be dealing with the top line real estate agents. Yeah, well, it's true. And it's very cyclical too. The number of real estate agents that move in when the market's hot and then move out when the market's really slow. And you're right that I've seen statistics on what the average realtor makes, which was around $60,000, which doesn't mean a lot of sales for them. It probably would shake out some of these people because, you know, the maybe buyers would be, if they had to pay, maybe they'd be better shoppers. I don't know. But again, my fear or my concern over this litigation is that it precludes the standard practice. I mean, they should make sure that the practices of MLSs are pro-competitive and realtors feel very strongly, but they are. But they're, you know, I don't know if you're aware of the Northwest MLS when this whole litigation began, decided to just make it optional to offer a buy-side fee because this almost began, part of the challenge was also the charges of steering, that realtors wouldn't show their clients houses that were not offering a lot, you know, 3% or 2% or whatever it was, that they'd steer them away from properties offering low fees. Basically, the Northwest MLS, which is sort of Seattle area, I think, changed it to say, well, you don't have to offer an agent's fee and well, make the agent's fees transparent. In other words, available to consumers so they could check that out. And prior to that, it was only other realtors would know. Only realtors knew that price. And from what I've read, I haven't looked at it closely. Very little has changed in CO. So there was an experiment to sort of avoid the litigation and do some of the early charges. And apparently prices are pretty sticky there. If you looked at commissions, I looked at commissions a long, long time ago, haven't done any work on it since, but it was sort of in the early 2000s. And they were cyclical, but within limited ranges. And you could sort of see them go up and down depending on whether these massive agents entered the market. And there was price competition. But I think and many people who read the paper said, well, there wasn't enough price competition. You know, they should have gone down to 1%, whether it was and they basically stayed within a range. And I'm sure the same thing happens now. They get higher when things are really difficult to sell or when the market's really tough and lower when everybody and their brother is trying to buy a house and you're easy to sell. The interesting thing I thought is the timing. This lawsuit is happening basically in a very high housing market. So it's essentially a seller's market. If it was, say, flipped around where it was it was really hard to to sell houses, then I think maybe there'd be less motivation for the, the jury to find in favor of the selling agent. Yeah. And you know, it's sort of the wrong time if you're ever gonna say, well, the buyer has to pay. 
it's really the wrong time to do it because it's interest rates are high, which is another obvious barrier. But you know the monthly payments are much higher. There there are huge lack of supply. Supplies people are just not uh, building affordable homes, and Wall Street's been buying up a lot of rentals and uh, single family homes and turning them into rentals. It's a very tough time for the housing market, and doing something like this. At this particular time, I think would make it even worse. Um, again, it's you know sort of actually requiring, prohibiting this practice. Is there a conflict of interest between the buying agent and the selling in terms of commission? The buying agent, you'd think that they want, would want to negotiate the cheapest price, but they're based on commission. So the more expensive they sell the house, yeah, the more money, the more they expensive make. they buy. Yeah, the more the more expensive the house they buy, the more money they make. For the selling agent, it makes sense, right? I mean, you want to sell your house for the most, but if you're buying, the agent wants that house to sell for a higher amount. Yeah, but they, you know, it, it, that was like a an article on Freakonomics. Remember that book? Oh yeah, with yeah. uh, was it Levine, Steve? Or yeah, I forget yeah. His name, but, he yeah. wrote one on on that sort of mismatch of incentives. But what the realtors will say is that the current system really encourages cooperation among competitors in terms of sharing listings and stuff, which I think sharing of listings is very good and widespread sharing of listings is even better. And they will argue that, you know, that's sort of one of the benefits of having a not, you know, basically making sure the buyer got, the buyer's agent got compensated and that they had to make a commitment because otherwise, I guess if a deal was forthcoming, the sell side agent could say, well, I'm not going to give you this. You know, So I think they view it as a way of making sure the system works and that is pro-competitive. And I think for the most part, they're right. But again, there are alternative models out there, and I'm sure there'll be more coming up. And it's just whether or not you let the market evolve in that direction or just preclude it de facto. There's also a clever argument that I'm sorry we didn't cover in our paper because I think it's simple and it's true, is that, you know, so the buyer buys another more expensive home. The buyer typically doesn't pay the agent who helps them buy that home. And if they move up, they've actually saved money. And I guess they only lose money if they downsize or, you know, become a renter. But I think there's also that element in terms of calculating damages that should be considered. And I don't know how they came up with the $1.8 but I bet it was just an estimate of the commissions that were paid in Missouri for all the home sales that occurred. I've seen other countries where they have a different structure. Maybe one of the issues people have in the US is you have this flat fee. So if you're generally speaking, right, 6%, 3% to the selling agent, 3% to the buying agent. So if you sell a million dollar house, then you're getting 6% split up. If you're getting a $100,000 house, you're getting 6%. So is the person selling the million dollar house doing 10 times the work versus the agent selling. I mean, I think that's the issue where right? in other countries where they'll have like a sliding scale, like the first 100,000 is a set percentage. And then as the house gets more expensive, you get a lower percentage, especially if you're in you know Aspen or you're in LA or something and you're routinely selling $10 million houses, 6% of $10 million, you sell one house. I mean, that's a, that set. might be a decade worth of career earnings. You're set. Yeah. And I, again, that... I would hope those kind of models evolve. 
you know, I don't, again, the standard model is probably going to change. And I know that's something that annoys people and may go to that kind of either sliding scale or some people are saying, well, the paid by the hour or whatever. But, you know, there's nothing prohibiting that kind of model from evolving now. People have tried the 2%, you know, there, there are a number of alternative models that are out there. They're not getting a lot of traction. I don't know why that is, but I think over time they probably will evolve and be somewhat different than what we have today. Everything's going to change. If you were able to in- implement some alternative models, I mean, what would you recommend? What you, know, you have vast experience in this, right? You went, you got a PhD in Harvard, at Harvard in economics, right? You, you study this. You worked at Freddie Mac. You're a, you're an expert on this topic. What would you propose? What's what's something well, ideal? I, I would tell the regulators to be very careful what they ask for and to focus on the operate. You know the the rules of the MLS that the realtors have established and view them from an anti-competitive way rather than preclude a particular form of arrangements. There are other things for transparency to the buyers perhaps about the make them more transparent and ensure that it operates in a way that does not preclude new entrants. But again, I think that the conclusion, you have to end the current structure practice of having the buyer's agent pay it. It's just the wrong way to go. Basically, this lawsuit ended in Halloween, at least in terms of that $1.8 billion. There's another one in 2024. There are going to be wholesale changes, oh, correct? Like the be. like. Right. Like the whole industry is changing. We're not going to dispute that. I guess the thing that we don't know right now is how it's going to change. Right. How do you think it changes? Because they're basically saying the seller paying for both sides of the commission, that's not going to be the normal model. We know that, right? When we say we know that right now, because that's why they lost $1.8 billion. Uh, Probably not. Probably they'll worry about, uh, you know, but I'm not sure. I I think that's going to be a long one to get rid of because again, it really helps the lower end of the market and the lower end of the market affects the upper end of the market. So I'm not so sure that won't disappear. That will necessarily disappear unless they're afraid to continue that practice. I think one thing is to not require it. But you know, I think again, I'm not all that familiar with all the nuances of the rules of the multiple listing services, but that's if I were justice, what I would be looking at and making sure that they didn't, you know, create a level of playing field. I think your sliding scale thing's an interesting one. That's certainly what they use in a lot of different industries, like wealth management, you know, is pretty standard. It's 1% for the first million, and then it goes down, and it makes more sense. Some people are predicting hourly, but I would hope that at least there is the opportunity to have the buyer, as seller, continue to pay for the fee just because it promotes people who need additional help in getting into homes. So the median home sale price in the United States surpassed 400000 in 2023, which is significantly up from about 235000 in 2017. Is the current housing market in a bubble? And what do you think are some of the trends we'll see in, say, the next five years? And with these lawsuits, it seems like, as we're, we're saying, it's going to be harder to get as much leverage. So it seems like this would lower the home prices it might, going forward. Yeah, I think it, if if this, be, it probably will. It'll probably put downward pressure on home prices. You would think the increase in mortgage rates would also put downward pressure on 
mortgage prices, but they haven't so far. And rents are going up through the ceiling. So there's just a real shortage of affordable housing units right now. And, and some of the stuff people are working on is really to see if there are financing barriers. The big thing is always zoning in that there are a lot of efforts to get more what are called accessory dwelling units, which would be renting uh, you know, your lower level in your home and having that count towards a mortgage. Or in California, there are a lot of what used to be called granny flats that are built in the backyard that you could rent out. So there's a lot of experimentation going on there with accessory dwelling units and trying to get them more acceptable by the financial institution. And the Office of Controller of the Currency is having this big initiative called Project Reach, whose mission is to increase homeownership rates, particularly among minorities. And it's exploring all the existing barriers. And so they're looking at different ways of housing supply, increasing that housing supply. There are a lot of empty office buildings out there now. And there are a lot of initiatives of sort of converting those to either rental or condominiums. There are a lot of initiatives trying to take vacant land and to build or rehab properties using city-owned land. So there's a lot going on. But right now, I think the big thing with housing is they're really taking a hit from the rapid increase in Interest rates gone from basically two something to eight something in a really short period of time. And it's sort of put a real damper on both affordability, but the ability to finance construction. How do you see the Airbnb market shaking out and coming up? <laughs> that I don't know. I know that, you know, in a lot of cities, that's a lot of community groups have been very worried about Airbnb because they are snapping up affordable housing units in certain markets, New York is one. Memphis or Nashville is a huge one where for some reason it, it's gotten so large that it's really had an impact on their housing supply. But there, And then the other influence, sort of beginning with the financial collapse in 2008, is that Wall Street has really come in and a lot of hedge funds have bought up single-family, you know, vacant, defaulted properties or just single-family properties that were for sale. Like it, 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 something like 20% of sales. And that has contributed to the, certainly the shortage of affordable single-family housing. So the housing market is going through a tough time now. And again, probably exasperated by this lawsuit, particularly if it requires potential homeowners to put even more money down. Do you think that the housing industry needs to be reformed? Or do you think that it's worked itself out over the, you know, like you're saying, the Realtor Association, I think it's been around since 1906. So it's over a hundred years. I mean, it wasn't called that at the time, but do you think that we're in a pretty ideal situation now? Well, what's ideal? You know, I think the housing finance system works extremely well. Fannie or Freddie are still, you know, in government receivership, which, uh, and helping to fund a lot of other programs. Several people would say they should be returned to private industries. Others would say, well, let the government take the profits. But I think in general, the system's performing very well. But again, the shortages of housing and the need to sort of do reform on zoning laws, I'd say more less so reforming the housing market than zoning reforms, which continue to be if you ask a builder, one of the major reasons, there's supply chain issues that came up and they're still sort of there about the price of lumber and all that. But zoning is a major problem, a major obstacle 
for producing affordable housing units because, you know, people don't want them in their backyard. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I thought when I was looking at this lawsuit, I think there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences. And I I thought like the zoning should have been a, a bigger issue. But, you know, Dr. Ann Schneer, I got two final questions. I want to make sure you're out of here on, on time. So the first one is just where can you know people find you if you want to give that information out, if people want to contact you, find your business. And then secondly is leave us with a final thought. Well, I guess my concluding thoughts are that I still believe, having worked for Freddie Mac, I still believe home ownership is very important and that I agree with the current emphasis on increasing worrying about minority households. And when I wrote my dissertation many years ago, I wrote it on racial segregation in the housing market. So I sort of have a long history of being concerned with these issues. And the gap between the home ownership rates of whites and non-Hispanic blacks was 30% in 1960 before any of the fair housing laws were passed. And it's 30% today. So it's clear to me a lot more is needed to be done. And despite a lot of good things that have happened over over that period of time, from my point of view is a major issue. And I continue to sort of feel pretty passionate about it. And then where can people get a hold of you? Well, I don't have a website. You can reach me at annschneer at AOL.com or Google me. Somehow people seem to find me. Thank you so much, Dr. Ann. Thank you. I enjoyed it. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.